Welcome into the Thunder Basketball Universe. We've got Michael Cage and Matt Pinto with us today to help break down the last four episodes of The Last Dance with all of its highs and lows, including the 96 dominant Bulls team, the price of winning at such a high level, and of course, Michael Jordan, the baseball player. With this crew, you know it's going to be good, so let's get right to it. It's the Thunder Basketball Universe. It's another Last Dance pod. We brought back our reinforcements, which means we have Thunder broadcast analyst Michael Cage and Thunder radio play-by-play broadcaster Matt Pinto and, of course, Nick Gallo. Guys, thank you so much for being here because we need all the help we can get to break down everything we've learned over the past four episodes of The Last Dance, which get more and more captivating with each and every one. Let's start with one of the most shocking moments in Michael Jordan's career and the one that nobody expected when he announced in 93 in front of less of a media scrum and more of a media tidal wave that he was retiring. And after that, we find out that he's going to go play baseball. Matt, I want to start with you. I'm curious. Do you remember where you were when you heard that? Yeah, I was in Charlotte uh, and because of the connection that the entire state and certainly the Hornets fan base had with Michael Jordan, everything to do with Michael Jordan and Michael Jordan's family, um, it was seismic. I mean, it was um, the level of an earthquake. But I I think that if you paid close attention to that final season as things began to wear on and he began to wear down mentally, physically, all of those components – it's somewhat understandable. And then with the death of his dad, I think that kind of capped things for him um, at that specific moment in his life, that it was time for him to kind of turn the page and and get away and unplug himself from, I felt like, honestly, in the portrayal in The Last Dance, um, a little bit of a naivete about him in the context of that he could do no wrong. And when he began to bump up and hit the bumpers and he wasn't this perfect player uh, in the Atlantic City story, for example, he's going to receive criticism. He's an iconic figure. And I felt like we we saw a side of him sensitivity-wise that maybe not many people recognized existed. Mike, what about you? Where were you when you heard this? Well, you know, first of all, I was still playing in the league, and um, I was shocked, as most players were. I started calling some of my friends and some of the guys I knew. Uh, I was on the, you know, Sonics team at the time. You know, I'm like, you know, I got a call from uh, Sean Kemp. He says, is this true? Is this for real? Because you got to realize, back then, news traveled a little bit slower. Okay, we didn't have all this social media stuff. You know, we didn't have every. I had to pay somebody. Like, I had to wait for them to call me back. But you know what? It was still big time news. I mean, you're talking about the most recognizable face in sports at the time. Wayne Gretzky, whoever you want to say, everybody knew who Michael Jordan, because we what? We all wanted to be like Mike coming out of the 80s. You know, how could you not be a fan of his, even if you were a foe, as I was at the time? I'm thinking, man, what is going on here? I knew what Matt, what you mentioned was right on the head. There was a lot of things going on in his life at the time. But for us players, you know, we didn't look at it as, oh, ding dong, the the Wicked Witch is gone. The title is up for grabs or whatever. We looked at it as like, what is it? We've never heard of this, you know, because still he was in his prime. We're talking about a guy who played, what, at that point, 93, because we both were in that 84 draft together. He had eight seasons in the books or nine, and he possibly walks away from the game when so much is at stake. 
I knew that there was something bigger going on. What it was, only Michael Jordan knew at the time. Apparently what it was is he just really wanted to play baseball, guys. I, I guess he was looking at Bo Jackson and Deion Sanders and some of these guys that were multi-sport athletes. Was that more in the water at that time that it was a little bit more normal that a guy might try his hand at a different sport? Or was that just still completely stunning that a guy in the NBA would try to play baseball? Well, he was in his prime. I mean, there was nothing about his game that had eroded skill-wise. I mean, we can speculate on the mental and the physical fatigue that may have taken until winning three consecutive titles. And I think the other aspect that was very revealing to me, Michael, I don't know how it hit you, Michael spoke outwardly. He spoke um, directly about nobody else has won three straight since Bill Russell. I'm going to do that, and then I'm going to assess – my options, so to speak. And so when he won that third straight, I think all bets were off um, figuratively. Uh, and he opted to, in essence, play the baseball card. And I think, again, the passing of his father and his father being so instrumental, not just in his life, but in forming him as a young athlete through baseball. Baseball was his dad's first love. I think that took hold. And Michael had not played baseball in many, many years, had not picked up a bat, had not thrown a baseball. So this was totally outlandish. I mean, to think conceptually that even the athlete at the level he was, a world-class athlete, far and away the greatest at his sport, could transition and be effective playing baseball. I was as harsh a cynic as there was, because to me, baseball requires a lifelong dedication to be effective and successful at the highest level. I didn't see any possibility of him transitioning that smoothly. Well, 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 first of all, man, I was trying to figure out, because I'm thinking back, way back to when we were in college, and we were on the, the national team. And I remember this guy, every day he showed up first at practices in Manhattan, Kansas, at Kansas State. Jack Hartman was the national team coach. And this dude was super competitive. He, he was fun-loving. He was like a, a guy's guy. He always had us together. You know, uh, okay, we, we're going to – practice is over. We're going to all scrimmage against each other without the coaches. I'm going, wait a minute, dude, you can't do that. Can he? You know, that's not the kind of guy he was. He was ultra competitive. So when, and I'm fast forwarding back to now to 1993, he's walking away from the game. You know, I knew that there were some things going on. We all knew that there were some things that only Michael Jordan had to figure out. Now, we got to keep in mind, let me set the stage for you back then. We hadn't had enough of Michael Jordan. We wanted more of him because he was the quintessential athlete. I mean, he represented the markability and power that was growing in, in athletes back in those days. And, and he was really setting the bar very high. And we just hadn't had enough of him. We were looking forward to more and more Michael Jordan. And so when he walked away from the game, we were saying, wait a minute, you can't do that. We haven't had enough of you. I'm saying I haven't played against you enough yet because I'm in the Western Conference, you know, so I only get to play against you twice. And, and I think for all of us, we started, you know, reflecting on, well, there are sometimes things in players' lives because I know the pressure can get very heavy and, and sometimes things, you know, that are bigger than the game itself. And you have to step away. Now, for me, I stepped away in the summer. I couldn't afford to step away in the winter, okay, because I was like in the prime of my career. No way. But he did it. It worked, and it became something uh, of a you know historical moment in NBA history. But there is no question, guys, that Michael left the door wide open to a return at some point in the future. It, it, this was not a de facto "I'm done" period. It was 
this is what I feel like doing right now. At some point, I may feel like playing basketball again. And sure enough. Matt, to your point, I mean, this was just a different iteration of the competitive Michael Jordan that everybody knew. He was still the same competitor. And I have to admit, when I heard about this later down the road, when I figured out what happened, I did Michael Jordan a little dirty, right? I saw his, you know, 202 and I was like, not a big eye popping number. It was just a whimsical flippant thing. But as you pointed out, Matt, he hadn't played organized baseball in over a decade. I mean, it was his teenager years when he was playing that level of baseball. And normally when they take teenagers to go into a professional career in baseball, you start at the, the lowest possible league, the lowest level. And they couldn't do that with Michael Jordan just because of all the press that he brought. I mean, the, the, they had to put him in double A's just because of all of the attention that he was getting just for sheer facility size. And so now you have a guy with a skill set of a teenager and you're putting him in double A. And for him to have a number that he had, an average number, that means he did over a decade of catching up in around 18 months. That was absolutely impressive and something that I didn't realize until after watching this documentary was it's the same competitive Michael Jordan, just in a different setting in a different league. Well, I think the other thing, Paris, that people need to realize is that double A is where the major prospects are in, in a baseball organization. People talk all the time about, well, triple A is the, the next rung below major league baseball. That's where the castoffs are. You know, you develop guys at the double A level. So he was playing against high level competition, the, the rung below major league level. Now, the, the guys there were young, clearly younger than him, but he had to construct a game from ground zero with uh, a looping swing for a guy that is six, whatever he is, six, five. Um, that took time to understand how to get to pitches, how to read um, spin out of hands on the mound. And I think the thing that was really eye-opening to me was to hear um, his hitting coach uh, with the Birmingham Barons and to hear Terry Francona, who was his manager at A, talk about how tirelessly he worked. This was not a whim for him. This was not like, let me just go down and put my toe in the water. This was a commitment on his part to become a Major League Baseball player. And were it not for the strike the following season – Everyone seems to believe that followed him closely that he would have gotten that job done, which is absolutely remarkable. Absolutely. And we have to remember, this is the same Michael Jordan who went to North Carolina, went after the best player on the team until he was the best player on the team two weeks later. (laughs) Give him a couple of years in, in minor league baseball. Who knows? He did have his eye, though, on that 1994 NBA playoffs and what was going on with the Bulls and Scotty and Tony Kukoc, I, I want to get you guys' take just on that playoff run and the fact that that Bulls team was still in position to make a, a charge for another title and, and ultimately came up short. Well, you know what? First of all, look at it this way. If LeBron James were to walk away from the Lakers today, what would happen? What would happen next season? What would we all say next season? What about the first time you played the Lakers without LeBron James? Or whatever. So I think for the Bulls in that 94 season, not having this big, you know, massive uh, figure or presence, because I got to realize Michael Jordan deflects a lot of attention, a lot of negative attention for teammates. I mean, he, he will fiercely protect you. He will fiercely uh, guard any anyone that's trying to mess with his team. Now, all of a sudden, Scottie Pippen has to realize, OK, am I the man? 
Tony Kukoc. He's saying, I'm the man. Maybe somebody else on that team is saying I'm the man too. So, you know, a lot of unanswered questions. And then, you know, the philosophical. Phil Jackson is saying, I got to really be the man now. <laughs> you know, I got to figure out how to make these guys believe in themselves without this polarizing figure figure that's now been pulled from the equation. Man, that's, that's tough, man. I'm going to tell you that now. Whenever you have such a massive player, not he's bigger. He, you know, he wasn't bigger than the game. His impressions was bigger than the game. We all knew him as a world figure. He's gone. And now these guys got to go through training camp and answer all the questions. And you know guys like me, I'm going at the Bulls. Y'all don't have Jordan? I'm going at you. It's time. It's my time now. That's what we all were thinking. And it really puts like the flip side of that, Nick, just really quickly, is that there are a lot of guys in that locker room that exhaled. I mean, they feared him. They feared the tactics that he took into practices, and there was never a time to take a playoff. If you did, you had to deal with the wrath of Michael Jordan. And this was been this has been illustrated beautifully in the last stand. So I think there also was a sense that one, Scottie Pippen came out of college as a point guard. He grew from the time um, of his senior season in, in college until he became the player he did in the NBA. So he had ball handling skills. Phil Jackson was a, a, a staunch believer in the triangle. This was an opportunity for the Bulls to run the triangle offense, which they did. They shared the ball. Guys on the team, I think, really embraced the challenge of proving that they had something other than number 23. So I think there also was that component that we saw play out. It's just part of, to me, what's the beautiful human dynamic that exists in pro sports. So there were different angles to take a look at around what went on with this team. Matt, to your point exactly, that season was maybe the the chance that this organization, the coaching staff, the locker room got truly tested. Can you withstand all of the things that you're going to have to without the Michael Jordan as a safety net. And we saw a lot of examples of maybe where some of that stuff slipped. Now they, they held up, they got themselves in the position. They had a great roster. The, the coaching did a wonderful job in making sure that that team played together. But when it came down to it, they weren't able to finish the job in a pretty uh, crazy series against the Knicks. Yeah, and when we look at uh, what was game three of that series, then the Bulls are down two games to none. This is an absolute must. They're playing at home. 1.8 seconds to play. The Knicks have mounted a massive rally from 22 down in the second half to tie the game. And Phil Jackson calls a timeout after a virtual shot clock violation on the previous offensive possession for the Bulls where Scottie Pippen, Pippen took a really bad shot, but he was left with the ball in a really tough set of circumstances. He was not happy going to the huddle. And then he got totally steamed in the huddle when the play was called for Tony Kukoc. And I thought, again, the last dance documented this really well, that Kukoc had been a clutch player as a rookie. He made a lot of last-second shots to salvage wins for the Bulls. So I didn't think there was much question where the ball was going to go as an observer of the game, and they followed it pretty closely. When they came out of the huddle and Scotty decides he's going to stay back because the play is, in fact, called for Kukoc, to me, that's a black mark you can't outlive. And I think it represents, if I were a Hall of Fame voter, he would not have qualified for Hall of Fame induction based on that single moment oh, where he flat me, out. Where's that, where's that mute button? I'm sorry. He flat, he flat out <laughs> oh, walked okay, out yeah. on his team. And, and here's the other aspect of that play, Michael, is that when Scotty's sitting, if I'm on the other bench, the Knicks, I know the ball's going to Tony Kukoc. Right. They had a rivalry that was inbred on Pippen feeling slighted by not being paid by Jerry Krause. Kukoc was Krause's guy. And, and Phil Jackson made the right play call, but it sent shockwaves through that locker room. Kukoc makes the shot. 
they get their first win in the series. But walking back to the locker room down that stairway at Chicago Stadium, you could tell they were in a stupor. Like they didn't know what had just happened and they had to deal with that internally that the Pippen, I'm sitting this play out. Yeah, that, that was an awkward moment. I, I admit that, you know, and I, I don't know if that's the right way if you're Pippen to handle that. But here's the deal. I understand because he had been there longer than coach and, and he had been the man, what, there's Batman, Michael Jordan, there's Robin, who? Is it Tony coach or is it Scotty Pippen? I would have to say it's Scotty Pippen. So, you know, those kind of things you have to endure what we were talking about earlier when this massive polarizing figure is no longer there because if he was there, who's going to get the basketball? Yeah, it's going to be number 23, right? So he's not there. And they're in a situation for the first time probably ever, all right, how do we handle this? We don't have, you know, the miracle worker, you know, to, to bail us out, you know, with an amazing shot that we've known, we've seen him do so many times. So I understand that part, you know, with, with Scottie Pippen. Like I said, I would have done it differently. But, you know, in this case, it worked, but did it work? You know, Coach makes the shot, as you mentioned, uh, Matt, at 1.8 seconds left. They, you know, they, they survived, you know, the series – well, extend the series. Let's say that they didn't get swept. And all of a sudden, there's animosity and dissension in the locker room that probably number 23 would have cleared up, you know, because he's that kind of a guy. He's got that kind of an attitude. He would have cleared that up at that moment, but he didn't. Now, now, here's, Matt, let me put your feet to the fire, okay? You're talking about that one moment, that one not shining moment, that bad moment, that that really poor judgment moment you would keep him out of the hall i would <laughs> man well why why have they why are barry bonds and roger clemens not of the major league baseball hall of fame because of indiscretions yeah but that was that was a different that was of a different nature though okay now, but, but i'll ask you michael this was one as a, moment as a where he Michael, as a competitor, you are in a team sport if you have a guy in essence check out on you when your season's on the line you're forgiving that easily i just i can't see it and well, I didn't I think obviously Allen played on the high school Let, level, let me say this. In all fairness, in the heat of the moment, basketball is a very passionate game. It happens. You know what? And, and I think we all know that it was, what, a black mark on his career? Hey, we're, we're all not clean. Matt, if, you've, if you are, you know what, if, if you are clean and clear, my friend, then you may <laughs> throw the first stone. But if not, hear me out for just one more second. I hear you. Obviously, he went on and became a great player despite this this huge magn you know this this magnificent figure here. He found a way to still be himself. I thought Pippen got his recognition as the years went by. You grow a lot of times from your mistake. I mean, hey, I saw one of the nastiest things you ever want to see. Okay, I'm in practice in Seattle, and we're just going at it because back then, uh, you know, in the early '90s, we just well, this is late '80s. Practice were real physical. We just grind it out, you know, and, and over a two hour period, guys start getting crazy and physical, you know, throwing, you know, uh, vicious elbows. And all of a sudden I look around, two guys are just <laughs> Xavier McDaniels and Dale Ellis, just just like a, a slug fest. I mean, going at it. I'm like, well, hey, 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 you know, and it was a vicious fight that went to the locker room and, and we couldn't break them up in the locker room. Guy was getting ready to go in the shower. It starts again. That kind of stuff happens. You know, the Steve Kerr thing with Michael Jordan being punched by him. You know what? I don't condone that, but it happens. And you grow from it. You, you say, look, man, 
whatever Jordan said to Steve Kerr after that, I'm sure it was some to the degree of apologetic. And, and, and next thing I knew, Dale Ellis and X started playing their best basketball. And as a team, we understood, all right, this is the boundary we don't go to, all right? And you learn to accept that and you move on. I think that was a moment that Pippen said, look, you know what? My bad. It was not something I'm proud of. I move on. But Matt Pinto, please don't keep me out of the hall, okay? Yeah. Here's the only other thing I'll add is that he did apologize to his teammates by all accounts, yet – he also said in this documentary, if I had it to do over again, I don't think I'd have changed a thing. I mean, explain that. Says that says a lot. Please. Well, I can't fault him for that either. He's saying, look, if I had to do it all over again, hey, I probably would have did it a little bit differently. But you know what, Pippen, I was glad. That's to not see what he said, fire. though, Michael. He said uh-huh. I probably wouldn't have done it differently. Well, I was glad to see a little fire in, in Pippen at the time because, you know, Pippen never really did it. You got to remember what the Pistons did to Pippen, man. Oh, they I know. Tortured that dude. They said, "All right, we we gonna find a weak link and we gonna beat him down." Pippen was the man, and now he's saying, "Look, I can step up and be the man. I'm gonna be a tough." You know what? Maybe he went a little bit overboard, but I understand. And the player he was after that, man, that's what I like. He did he repeat that? No. Was it an anomaly, an isolated incident? Incident? Yes, it was. Certainly a memorable 1.8 seconds in the Chicago Bulls timeline while Michael Jordan was gone. But there was another moment, a very brief moment, and it was a two-word fax. I'm back. What do you guys remember about that day? I'm glad fax machines were on, is what I remember. <laughs> it would have been a tweet today. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm glad I had my pager working, too, because I said, oh, he's back, he's back. Who is this? Well, I think that the stage was kind of set when he said, I'm not crossing the picket line baseball-wise. So it was like, okay, what am I doing now? And he was invited back by B.J. Armstrong to practice, practiced a handful of times, and all of a sudden momentum built that he may come back. This is March, and it was um, extraordinary. I would say at at an even higher level than when he actually left the game in 93. Um, But the reality of – the concepts of superhuman and if anybody can do what he can proved a fallacy because he was not in physical basketball condition to deal with what was to come in that playoff run. And that showed itself in that Orlando series that wound up knocking him out uh, and knocking the bulls out for the first time in more than a decade with Jordan at the helm. Well, you know, first of all, when, when you hear that word, I'm back, you know, we all kind of knew, uh, what it meant at the time. You know, I was still a player, obviously, uh, just a year later. Now, what you really look at is like, all right, well, I understood because when I was with Jordan, I spent the entire summer with him training on the national team. I got to know him, and I said to myself, okay, he's back, but he never left, okay? First of all, you can't you can't walk away from something you love so much, and I'm remembering all the times he was forcing us to play one-on-one against him after our national team practices you know, at Kansas State. And I'm going, look, man, I'm tired. You know, it's hot. It's humid. It's summertime. We're in Manhattan, Kansas. You know, he's, I'll play all y'all one-on-one. And I'm going, okay, he's back, but he never left. I mean, it's just obviously sometimes, you know, the game is, carries a lot of pressure. It carries, a, you know, when you're the most, you know, looked at, most watched, most, you know, uh, microscoped player of your generation, man, you know, no matter what you do, you're going to always have something. You can't get away from it. Now, for me, 
how I got away, I went to Disneyland. I didn't win a championship, but I went to Disneyland anyway, okay, in the summer. And people look at me and go, who are you? I go, I'm six foot nine. That's who I am. Oh, okay. I said, look, man, I'm Michael Cage. Do you know that? Oh, okay. I'll tell my kids. Like, that's, that's my getaway. Michael Jordan, he couldn't do that. He couldn't get away. He couldn't go anywhere in this world on the planet in 1993 or 94 to do that. So maybe that year away was the best thing that could possibly happen to him. And now all of a sudden he says, I'm back from that sabbatical. I got myself together. And there are some things, you know, I need to work out. BJ did, you know, his job. And he, you know, he kind of like hot bath water, man. You kind of put your toe in a little bit. Eh, see how it is. And the water's good. You like it? You go and get in the tub. And that's what he did. But, you know, the, the aspect too, though, of this Nick and, and Paris is that while the Pistons fueled his push over the top to win those first three titles, the magic and the humility that was right there for him to eat on his doorstep and falling the way he did to the magic in that semifinal series in the Eastern Conference fueled his fire again so that that offseason he became very intent on, if I'm going to play, we're going to win. And I'm not going to accept this losing stuff. Tim Grover, his personal trainer, let it be known to everybody that he was ready to go to work the following day after his team was eliminated. So I think you look at the Pistons and the Magic, that Magic team was really stocked and talented as, um, you know, really pivot points in the forming of what the Jordan era and the Jordan dynasty were all about. Yeah, there was definitely a vengeance that Jordan and the Bulls in 96 came back with. And Jordan's, you know, on top of the world in every way. Obviously, the shoes are, are going crazy. He's got Space Jam that comes out, like the first time that a player had really done something like that. But on the floor, what separated that 96 Bulls team from the other Bulls teams in that era for them to get to that 72-win milestone? I think it's Dennis Rodman. I mean, you know, they really missed Horace Grant when he became an Orlando Magic player because of the dirty work he did on the front line at the power forward spot. That position was different at that time and, and, and age in NBA basketball. You needed that position. You needed a defender to deal with the low post. That was a factor in the offense as teams were rolling out um, standardly in the NBA. And you needed a guy that was willing to do that dirty work and, and go uh, gobble up defensive rebounds to trigger the breaker to get you going offensively. They missed him. Um, significantly the previous season, bringing Dennis Rodman in and having a presence like Jordan to at least keep him reined in professionally on the court. I thought Michael was the biggest aspect, aside from Jordan tirelessly working to get himself back into full basketball condition to what we saw from the Bulls the following season. Well, I, I think you're right, Mac. You know, with uh, the Rodman uh, acquisition, that was huge for the Bulls. I mean, you just sometimes – some teams just continually make the right moves. It was a perfect move for them. And I think it gave the Bulls another polarizing figure, if you will, because, you know, Dennis Rodman became what he was, man. I remember, you know, when he dressed up in a dress and was on top of the Empire State Building to launch his book. That's great for Michael Jordan. You know, that's great deflection for him because you got to realize Michael has been taking the line of fire his entire career on that team. So you get another guy like that who's now all of a sudden, you know, being what he wants to be. And uh, it, it really, I think, took a lot of pressure off of Jordan in that sense, just from a media standpoint of view. Now, the game itself didn't change because Michael Jordan was, you know, he was phenomenal at that point. I mean, anytime he went three uh, straight titles in a row, you know, you've got to be doing something right, you know, coming after 
we've, what we just talked about, you know, uh, taking a year off from the game and then having to start somewhat. Maybe that was what was best for him, too, because he's so competitive. He's always playing. He's always training and doing all that sort of thing. I, even with the baseball, I, I was, you know, listening to it last night with, I think a baseball scout was talking to him, maybe a coach, and saying, you know, Michael, you got to understand, baseball is different than basketball, the way you train. Uh, the way you move, everything is totally different. Maybe that was something that really helped him, helped refocus him, reshape his body, and then coming back with the trainer who put him in amazing shape, and then they go on, a, you know, they win three straight titles. I mean, just phenomenal stuff that you look at where a lot of things happen right for the Bulls. It wasn't just Michael Jordan. I mean, the acquisition, yes, of, of Rodman. I mean, Phil Jackson still believing in, in this team. And then that year that that team had without Michael Jordan, as you mentioned, Matt, to run the triangle offense and perfect that. Because, you know, they got to realize the triangle offense, is it is what it is. It's based off a triangle. You know, you're just going to go simply into the post, have a guy who can have, you know, pass the basketball decently. Rodman, come on, man. That's all the guy did. He didn't really take a shot. Do you remember Dennis Rodman taking a jump shot? I don't. But he was perfect in the triangle. It worked. And they took off, you know, a year later and, and continued what I think we all saw. And I don't know if I expected anybody to win three in a row because that's very difficult to do. But they did it. And it was amazing, man, you know, to see that kind of uh, – I don't like saying dominance because I was a, still a player at the time. You know, I got an ego too, you know, pride, all that, what you want to call it. But they dominated because of that. And they made the right moves. And they, you know what, they put their egos aside. And Jordan, I think he was the biggest one. Earlier in the um, Last Dance episodes, put his ego aside and stopped being the scoring champion and more of a team player that led to championships. Mike, I'm going to take a little bit of a different approach here. I think Mike's ego and his pride is what helped them the very next season after losing to the Magic. There's a common theme throughout this documentary, and it's every time Michael Jordan feels slighted or feels like he gets beat, just to be honest. He's a competitor. He doesn't like to lose. He gets beat, Horace Grant, the Magic, and now he reconstructs his body. That's exactly the word he used. He had to reconstruct his body to come back, and he came back with vengeance. The same thing happened when they lost to Detroit before the first three-peat. It's a common theme. He gets beat, and then he builds his body up, gets back, and then comes back with a vengeance and wins. Also, another side note, I don't know about you guys, but I could watch a whole documentary of Michael Jordan's reactions to what people are saying about him whenever the director hands him an iPad. <laughs> I, I'm, this goes right into the Supersonic series where he literally says, I had no problem with the glove. What were your guys' thoughts about that? Well, <laughs> athletes are delusional and, and they live in an illusion <laughs> like we all do. Like we all do. We all do in our lives. Like we believe differently than what our reality is. Just to reiterate, Matt, we're all delusional, right? Yes, we are. Right. So, so, but, but my point is that Peyton had an effect to get the Sonics back in the series. Absolutely 100%. You look at the numbers, you look at the stats, you look at the level at which he played on both ends of the floor. He wore Michael down on those two games that were won in Seattle by the Sonics. So, but it was priceless, like you said, Paris, to watch Michael just literally laughing, like belly laughing, because he won't admit to himself 
that Peyton may get the better of him for those two games. And he knew coming home, regathering his forces, that the Bulls would be fine. And Michael, they were. But I, I love that aspect of watching this documentary, seeing Michael respond to what others were saying. I thought absolutely priceless. Michael, you would know as well as anybody what those Sonics teams were all about. You had been with Peyton and Kemp. You weren't on that 96 team, but you know, as we've learned about the way that this Bulls team played, the gritty defense, the, the triangle offense, playing through Jordan, Pippen as a facilitator, can you maybe explain how the Sonics team played that season and, and got themselves to the NBA Finals? Well, first of all, that team was built in 92 when George Carl first arrived. You know, he was trying to construct a team that, first of all, that could get past the first round in the Western Conference. Because if you get past the first round in the Western Conference, you got a good chance. Now, you got to realize back then it was best three out of five. And that's not, that's more in favor of teams that, you know, come in that, that have a lesser record. Let's say that. Because if you have a, a bad couple of games, that series is over. So you have to watch out for that. George knew what he was doing. So when that team got to the 96 series against the Bulls, you know, that team was about as complete as it could be without Michael Cage. Okay, that's all I'm going to say. Okay, I got that out because, you know, I could handle Rodman, first of all. But, but that aside, you know, when, you know, George Carl, I, it was interesting. Now, when I saw, you know, the, the, the last dance last night, and that little piece with George Carl, George Carl talking about he saw Michael Jordan in a restaurant, and he, he's a North Carolina guy, George is, so is uh, Jordan, and he just walks by and without speaking, Michael Jordan is in a restaurant with Amar Rashad, a good friend of his, and, and George Carl ignores him, doesn't even say anything. And Jordan looks at Armand and said, do you believe that? I can't say exactly what he said, but he said something to that degree. Do you believe that? He didn't even say anything to me. And Jordan, that's the type of player he is. He will use, he used everything he could to throw it at you. And that's what he did against Seattle in that series. And of course, now back to the Peyton thing, you know, GP was a great guy, first of all, you know, super competitive, but in this series, you know, I, he was, the only thing he could do was be physical, in, in my opinion, with Michael Jordan. Couldn't stop him. Who can stop Michael Jordan? Okay, okay. So Jordan's not averaging 35 in the NBA Finals. He only averaged a career-low 27 a game against the Sonics. Okay, I'm trying to figure out where's the celebration in that? Because that means somebody else, and when the Bulls got the ball in the hands of somebody else, and they're doing damage for point, point parts of the game, that's a problem because then, you know, they got guys like Kukoc, Pippen, who are scoring numbers on you. So when I heard about that part with Gary Payton, as, as terrific of a defensive player he is, GP is six foot three. Michael Jordan is six, 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 seven, plays above the rim, can shoot right over the top of me at six foot nine. Now, now there was a couple of moments in Seattle where they, they were able to be physical with Jordan. You know, you know how Jordan is, man. He's gonna keep coming at you. He's gonna he's like the terminate terminator. All right, you figure not the not the good terminator, the bad terminator, where once you beat me, I'm gonna turn around and use that against you the next time. That's a weapon I'm gonna use against you. He did it against George Carl, and he did it against uh with with uh, GP. If there's one thing that we've learned during during this documentary, it's don't poke a sleeping bear. AKA Michael Jordan that happened with BJ Armstrong and 
we also saw this in the LeBradford Smith story, which really illustrated exactly what happens when you go against Michael Jordan. And this just happened to be on a back-to-back the very next night. LeBrad, well, LeBradford Smith had 37 points in that game. Michael Jordan still kind of coming back. The very next game, Michael had 36 in the first half. That competitive edge really fueled a lot of the Bulls' successes throughout all of MJ's career. But that also came with a little bit of a dark side, which was illustrated in the documentary with his teammates. And you guys alluded to it a little bit earlier, Mike. You mentioned your practices. You just see guys suddenly get in a scuffle. I mean, what did you think when you saw this and you saw just how intense Michael Jordan was, especially with incidents like what happened with Steve Kerr? Well, well, first of all, you know what, uh, what was it? What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. That's kind of how it was back then. What happened in the, on the court stayed on the court. Now this thing came out, you know, really the, the specifics of it years later with, with Steve Kerr being hit by Michael Jordan, but that sort of thing went on all the time. I, I, you know, that, that example I gave of Xavier McDaniels and uh, Dale Ellis, you know, Dale Ellis, a very docile guy, very laid back, relaxed, you know, X, he was kind of wild and crazy, but, and all of a sudden, you know, you have that happen. And, and, and back then, the physicality of the game required you to have that toughness. If you didn't, you didn't survive. You know, nobody said, look, you know, who wants to go to war with somebody? Is that when shrapnel starts flying over your head and stuff, I'm, I'm dropping my M16. I'm, I'm, you know, going for my foxhole. No, you want guys are going to stand and face the fire. And one way to stand and face the fire is in practice. We all tested each other. Michael Jordan tested his entire team. Guess what? I tested my team. I just want to know, you know, who got my back. If, if you know, things break out out there. And back then, Matt Pinto, we had a lot of times things that broke out on the floor that everybody else saw. But a lot of things happened in practice that a lot of people didn't see. Yeah, and, and Michael, you're shedding light on the reality of the NBA at the time. I think what makes this so dramatic and almost mythical is that this guy was it. I mean, this guy would say something and then go do it. He delivered. So winning titles, plural, you had to listen. There was no escape. And as he said in the documentary, I didn't ask my teammates to do anything other than what I was willing to do and did. But as Steve Kerr said, we didn't have the talent Michael had. So it's not like we could like push through some barrier that we knew existed. But Michael just demanded the best of us for us to be focused, for us to be all about business. When we were on the court. I think that given the framework of what went on in his era, it worked because he led them to championships. And it's like he also said when you saw the sensitive side of him, when some of his teammates were asked, is he a good guy? And some of them paused. It hurt Michael. I mean, you saw that. You saw him react on camera to that. And he basically was saying, this is the only way I know to win. Winning comes with a cost and a price. And I was willing to pay that price because it was about championships for me. And if you didn't want to play at that level, get out. I don't want you as a teammate. So I loved it. I, to me, it was as raw and real as anything we've ever seen an athlete of his caliber speak. And, and Michael, I think it speaks also to this is why superstar athletes that have won championships are not good coaches because they demand above and beyond what most common athletes that play in the NBA, the highest caliber of basketball on the globe, can deliver. Magic Johnson was an abject failure as a head coach. We've seen it systematically over time. The only guy that 
sort of pushed through that and was effective in the limited time he coached was Larry Bird. I mean, Bird had something about him that had him understand, but I think Bird also had to work exceptionally hard for what he got. Whereas the perception with Michael is Michael had the athleticism, the work ethic on top of that is what pushed him over the top. But all of that to me was just fascinating to, to see that dynamic. And, and in essence, the method of, of uh, Michael Jordan's genius was if you can't take me putting you under pressure in practice, how are you going to deal with Pat Riley's Knicks and Shaq and, and Orlando and the bad boys? You're not. Yeah, there was definitely a philosophy on display. A good 15 you know, minutes basically there where Jordan explained, this is how I do things. This is how I operate. Yes, I'm vicious. Yes, I'm tenacious. Yes, I'm unrelenting. But this is how I get things done. You know, we saw the stories, the Bradford Smith, for all those Game of Thrones fans out there, that was like the reigns of Castamere. And then that goes into B.J. Armstrong, who had, you know, the next guy up for him to, uh, to terrorize after that, just for simply, you know, barking a little bit. And so we saw that over and over again. And as you guys are describing, that also spilled into his leadership style. I'm curious from your standpoint, I know you guys both have been in the league so long. How would you compare that Jordan leadership to maybe some of the best leaders that you guys have been around in the teams that you've been on? Wow. Well, you know, I, I think that Jordan was spot on. Man, you know, if you talk about during those times now, now he got the end result championships What he went six titles. Right. But that happened in a lot of locker rooms. I'm going to be honest with you. It, it wasn't like it was just Jordan, you know, pushing the envelope by himself. I mean, I remember countless times where I was in the locker room with guys like uh, Norm Nixon, uh, Marcus Johnson, you know, when I got up to Seattle, you know, X-Man, you know, uh, that that type of uh, personality. And now, you know, it's different than what it is today because today, you know, the guys are more friends, you know. And that's just how it is. They, they played AAU ball together. I didn't play AAU ball. You know, I just played street ball, sandlock, blacktop, and that was it, you know. And when, when, when my street couldn't beat your street, Nick Gallo, we fought. We just, hey, you know, and then after we threw a couple of punches – you know, hey, man, all right, I'll see you tomorrow, you know, and that's how it was, you know, and and with, with those guys back, with what Jordan was doing, you got to love it, man. He was really, really seeking the best out of every single guy. Now, he wasn't, you know, not only was he, you know, uh, practicing what he preaches, man, he was putting it on display for all of us, I mean, and privately with his teammates, and you got to also give him credit, too, though, now, it wasn't like he was just picking on people. Right. It, it didn't happen that way. Like Scotty Burrell said, well, Jordan wanted me to, you know, fight him one time and I wouldn't fight him. You know, I've seen that happen a lot of times. A lot of guys just uh, you know what? I get it. OK, I get you want me to be tougher. You want me to push you or whatever. Or you want me to be an example today in practice, because sometimes coaches, you don't want coaches coming up to you saying, which happened to me a couple of times. Hey, Cage, can you knock somebody upside the head? You know, I go, well, what do you mean? He said just get a little bit of something going in practice. You know, we're, we're like having too much fun. It's a country club today. I need everybody focused. And when he said that to me, and I said, you know, I heard him say that to other people too. I go, okay, I better raise the bar because I know the hammer time is coming. That's how it was. And Jordan pushed his teammates and they knew it. They knew it was coming and they accepted it, you know, and he wasn't, it wasn't like he was just picking on one particular guy. It was a, it was a philosophy. It was, it was who he was and who had, he had been, and he just basically said it, 
what, in the last 10 seconds? If you don't want to play that way, then don't play that way. He's basically saying, if you don't want to go that way, and I'm going to push you to the limit of what you can, your, your truest potential, you don't want to do that, then don't do it. I think, you know, there are aspects to team as well that we can spend a minute on. And, and the prime example here uh, with the Thunder is when Kendrick Perkins was in the throes of what was going on, when he came having won a title with Boston in 08, and frankly, had he been healthy, they likely would have won it in 10 against the Lakers as well, but he had that knee injury. But he tried to teach and mold the young players in that Thunder locker room. And one of the funniest moments that became public is when he and Steven Adams were going at it in practice and he yelled at Steven, I'm the only silverback here. Like you need to realize that. Uh, and, and so, you know, understand there are those dynamics that play out in the framework of teams as well. Um, I re vividly remember being with the Dallas Mavericks when Dirk Nowitzki came into the NBA and Eduardo Nahara is so loved here, given his time at OU. Nelly, when Dirk would make a mistake as a rookie, Dirk was incredibly sensitive. And if you got on him in a certain way, you'd lose him for an extended period of time. There are players like this. And he would scream at Nahara to get to Dirk in practices. And Nahara knew it. Nahara had thick skin and he'd just laugh at it. And then Nahara would have to whisper something to Dirk to convey what Nelly's message was. Don Nelson, the winningest head coach um, ever in NBA history in terms of total victories. So you've got to understand the psychology that is effective as well. And where Michael may have come at players in the same way, there had to be a mop-up guy there, Michael. There had to be a guy that was, to Michael's bad cop, there was a cop that was going to put his arm around a player that needed that because they were more sensitive in different ways. And so I think understanding that psychology is part of the reason Phil Jackson, for example, was as successful as he was. He knew how to manage guys in different ways, and that dynamic is pretty important, having all cylinders fire in a way that gets the most out of them in prime minutes of a game. One of the things that really stuck out to me at the end of this episode, episode seven, it was super emotional. And you could just tell that Michael Jordan wanted at that level, at that point in the, in, in NBA, the standard was the mountaintop and he wanted everybody to get to the mountaintop, but then he wanted to go to the moon. And in order to go to the moon, you know, you got to get out of the atmosphere atmosphere. It's going to be uncomfortable. But that's the, that's the next level, and that was the expectation, and he wanted all of his teammates to feel that as well. And so it was really cool, like you're mentioning, Matt, to see the psychology and just how important that was to him. And he genuinely did want what was best for his teammates, even if it did mean, I got to push you, and it's going to be uncomfortable, it's going to be tough, but that's what it's going to take. And it certainly worked out because it ended up in a three-peat. But we want to thank you guys so much for joining us. We've certainly reached a new level on this podcast and couldn't have done it without you. So thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, guys. And we want to thank you so much for listening. Be sure to like, rate, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much to our producers. And until next time, thunder up and catch you later.